Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from ScreenCraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted path. Fortunately, ScreenCraft are here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures by your favourite writers such as J.J. Abrams and Tony Gilroy, to a daily blog with amazing advice. It's also no secret that ScreenCraft have the best screenwriting competitions around. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, Lionsgate, Universal, Blumhouse, Hulu. The list goes on and on of places that ScreenCraft winners have sold scripts to or have got staffed on shows at. So if you're an aspiring writer, don't wait to check out ScreenCraft at ScreenCraft.org today. Follow the link in today's show notes to find out more and get your writing dreams started. In the very, very first draft, his character arc was that he was like kind of a weak president um, and that he was kind of spi- like people always called him spineless. <laughs> and then Jeff and I had this thing that made us like cry laughing where the end of his arc was ripping out ro- like 10 robot spines and holding them in the air and screaming, who's spineless now? <laughs> Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, a brilliant screenwriter revisits their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Mike Rianda and Jeff Rowe, the writer-director duo behind one of this year's most riotously funny and inventive movies. In The Mitchells vs. The Machines, two terrible things happen to young filmmaker Katie Mitchell. First, her dad decides to surprise her by taking the entire family on a cross-country road trip on the eve of her going to college. And second, the tech apocalypse strikes, enslaving pretty much all of mankind. It's neck and neck as to which one is worse for Katie. Together it's up to The Mitchells to stop the robot uprising and save the world from destruction. Featuring groundbreaking animation, hilarious movie references, and Olivia Coleman as an evil Alexa, The Mitchells vs. The Machines had everything. But as you'll discover in today's episode, the film almost went in a very different direction. Originally titled Control-Alt-Escape, the film's first draft had The Mitchells on a mission with the President of the United States. It had a drastically different ending and a reduced role for two of the movie's standout characters, the glitching robots Eric and Debrabot 5000. In the conversation you're about to hear, we dig into all of those changes, as well as its chances of a sequel, and yes, that scene with the demonic Furby which has haunted my nightmares ever since I saw this film. It's a spoiler-filled conversation, if you hadn't already guessed, so if you're yet to see The Mitchells vs. The Machines, head to Netflix right now, then come back as we delve into every detail of this incredible movie. Before we do that though, a quick reminder that Script Apart is now on Patreon. For the price of a single monthly cup of coffee, you can now support the show, have a say in upcoming episodes, submit your questions for upcoming guests, and get a free copy of our brand new digital magazine. To get involved, simply head over to patreon.com forward slash script apart. Okay, that's the housekeeping out of the way. Let's get into it with the awesome Mike Rianda and Jeff Rowe. A huge thanks to our Patreon supporters, that includes John Crozier and Jess Cranbrook. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner. Produced by Camille Demeck. 
Okay, in the words of a certain Furby, let the dark harvest begin. <laughs> Jeff, Mike, welcome to Script Apart. Thank you so much for being here. I can't tell you how much I love this film and I can't begin to imagine what the last couple of months have been like for you guys kind of witnessing the reaction to this movie, which seemed to strike at a really important time. How's it been for you guys like witnessing the outpouring of love and affection that there's been for the Mitchells versus the Machines? Um, it's been, it's been incredible because, you know, we were working on this for, uh, you know, six years, um, which is embarrassing to say out loud. Um, uh, and you know, I'm just so happy that people liked it because, <laughs> you know, we, we liked it, you know, we were like, oh, this is great, you know, but you never know. Um, and it's been really gratifying seeing, you know, people are getting Mitchell's versus machines tattoos, <laughs> which I know I wouldn't advise. Um, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's very touching, um, regardless, uh, uh, you know, if you've already got one, I love it. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, so it's, 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 it's been, it's been really incredible. Um, and, and it's also been incredible seeing, you know, that was our theory that like the love that we put into the movie would sort of come back to us and it has worked shockingly um which is uh wonderful yeah. jeff how about you what's your experience been it, it was good there, there there was like i mean to to mike's point like uh uh like i don't know i think i think it being like an original thing and not really knowing what it's like we spent five years on this and people would be like oh what are you doing what are you up to what are you working on and it's like oh i'm uh directing a movie and they're like uh-huh yeah yeah sure <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like what what is it what what uh property is it and we're like it's uh, the original thing uh and it's nice to have a uh 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 a receipt for the time uh that we put in <laughs> um but yeah there, there was like a like two three week high where it's like everyone's like tweeting about it and being really nice and the whole world's like engaging it. And then, and now I'm just like back to, uh, uh, back to work. But, um, it was so, yeah, it was so exciting to see, to see it take flight, to see it, uh, uh, <laughs> be, be liked by people. Well, and Jeff was always like the optimist where it's like, Oh, people are going to love it. And I was always like, yeah, I was like curled up in a ball, you know, sucking my thumb saying that people are going to hate it. So uh, <laughs> he was right. Yeah. I'd be what like, I it? think this is good. I think we're doing okay. I don't know. <laughs> what were your apprehensions, Mike? What were you worried about? Or is it just kind of when you are four or five years into a project sort of self-doubt is always going to creep in? Yeah. I mean, I think you just go, bananas and 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 also just you know because it's like uh uh you know it, that's it's sort of a cliche but you know you can see all the mistakes um or all the areas that you sort of fell short or or and also places that you know um yeah it just it's just like the things i you know will the things that i think are funny make other people laugh um uh you know or will the things that make me cry make other people cry and, and all that stuff so it's like i just wasn't sure um so, you know, and, and it's true. There's, there's plenty of people who are like, this sucks. We hate it. <laughs> so, you know, they, 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 uh, I, I understand them. I understand their point of view as well, but, um, but I like it. Uh. <laughs> and those people are getting, I hate Mitchells versus the machines tattoos. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> it's cool. It's okay. wild. I like the, my face with like the word hate written in blood on the forehead, <laughs> um, which I would advise that, that tattoo, I think it's great to get everyone to get. 
So my uh, grasp of the chronology of this movie is a little bit uh, hazy. And um, did you guys have the film finished by the time the pandemic struck, or were you still working on it through lockdown? Because, well, for me, I certainly watched this beautiful movie about the importance of family at a time where I hadn't been able to see my family for the longest period of time, I think, in my entire life. I can't imagine what it would have been like to work on a movie with this message in a similar position of being apart from your loved ones. Yeah, it no, was, it, I mean, it, it, we we start, but we, I will say we started so long ago. So it's like, we, we you know, so it, this has been brewing for a while. And I think we had finished a big push right before the pandemic started. So that was really nice, but we still didn't stop working on the pandemic, the, the movie as the pandemic was going, we were finishing animation. We were making some editorial changes and tweaks and stuff. But, but I will say the movie was like kind of locked ish um, by the time the pandemic started. And it's true. It, it was, it was kind of wild that a movie that's sort of about a disaster where you have to hold tight to your loved ones, uh, you know, came out during a disaster where you have to hold tight to your loved ones. And, and also, uh, you know, this accidental ending we had, you know, that was sort of like a Skype call sort of took on new meaning when the only time you could sort of contact your family is through Skype or whatever, um, or Zoom. I don't know. I'm, I don't. I'm, I hold no fealty to Skype. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the film really does capture family life in a way that feels so authentic. Like the love, the conflict, the dysfunction, the care. Uh, so many people, I think, saw themselves and their families in these characters during. Well, yeah, as I said, a, a time where a lot of us have been experiencing this enforced separation. Um, how do you think the context that this movie arrived in kind of, uh, yeah, nuclear charged the message of Mitchell's versus the machines? Uh, I mean, I, to, to speak to the to the family element of it, like I, I, I think I think part of what people really respond to in, in the family is like we, we kind of started with like a mission to be like ultra specific with like the characters, like to be really um, realistic and observed and Rick Mitchell is based very much on, on Mike's dad and all his, and, and, you know, the initial draft of the script had probably too many of his like actual, uh, uh, idiosyncrasies like, uh, in it. Um, and like, it was a little too realistic. And then it was just this, like, I don't know. And I think, I think people, I think the more specific you are, the more universal it becomes, you know, uh, yeah. because everyone knows a Rick Mitchell or sees that kind of person. And, and same thing with Katie and the rest of the family. Um, so I think like being very honest about a family allowed it to connect to more families <laughs> I, 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 no, I think I think that's true. I mean, it was sort of that, like you know, speak, you know, talk about your village and you'll talk about the world thing, you know, because we were sort of trying to drill down into these characters and make them sort of, uh, you know, as, as true to our experiences as we could be. And it was it was nice to see people like, oh, did you take a you know camcorder and film my family for the past ten years? And and even though Katie's an artist, like a lot of people were like, oh you know, I, I was a graphic designer and my dad didn't like it, or I was, a you know, I didn't want to be a doctor and my parents freaked out or, or whatever it is. I think there's always this sort of push and pull with, with kids and parents about sort of, you know, their dreams versus what's realistic versus what's going to hurt them and stuff. Um, and I do think that like, especially during this time, it, 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 at a time where you're really missing your family, 
you know, those, those sort of little, um, that stuff kind of tends to fade away, like those little conflicts and stuff. And as you touched on there, you know, you guys were bringing parts of yourselves to this story. Um, I, I know, Mike, that you, I think you mentioned elsewhere that you were a little brother whose siblings went off and, you know, you experienced that vulnerable feeling that Aaron feels in the film. What are the other ways in which there are parts of yourselves in these characters? Um, yeah, I mean, like, well, it's like, like Jeff was saying, sort of like, you know, the dad is just my dad. You know, my dad is a, I don't know if it made it into the script that we sent you guys, but like at one point I just literally wrote out my father, the character, he, his name was even Brian and my dad's name is Brian. And then the, the very first draft that we never even showed anyone except a couple people at Sony, they were like, this man it, it has, is, is a lunatic and no, no one will follow him. <laughs> Like, this is too realistic. Um, he's too, uh, why are the mom and dad together? <laughs> um, uh, and it's like, you know, even though my, my sort of whatever, it's, it's like, uh, uh, so we, we sort of ended up, um, we sort of ended up sort of trying to sort of broaden it and make it a little bit more universal without losing some of that sort of bite. Um, and then, yeah, and then I think like me and Jeff were like obsessive little kids, um, and that's sort of where some of the, that Aaron stuff comes from. And, and, and Jeff still knows um, more about dinosaurs than, than I ever will. <laughs> I like facts. I like, I like holding on to obscure uh, information. Can't um, say fairer than that. Um, so in terms of that specificity and the, the authenticity of these characters, were there kind of other cinematic touchstones for you guys? Uh, I mean, like the, the dysfunction of the Mitchells, like the love between the characters that's more important than the dysfunction. Uh, that reminded me a lot of like early Simpsons. Were, were there other kind of oh, on-screen yeah. families for you guys that you wanted to emulate? Yeah, I mean, I think we both grew up with the Simpsons so much to the point where it's like in our DNA. Um, so that that's that's like definitely one. But we we always had like big, heady film school influences for the movie. Like there was always like, you know, Jeff would always write like a swirling boogie night style tracking shot, you know, or whatever. Um, <laughs> and like, you know, that sort of stuff where we would, we would be sort of like reaching as high as we could, you know, it's like, we're just like these little kids who are like, maybe we can get, you know, like, um, you know, uh, maybe we can, we can make movies as good as our, our heroes. Um, so it was, so, uh, so a lot of it was, was sort of like, you know, a lot of that like Katie cinephile stuff was just sort of like us growing up. We were like little pretentious film jerks <laughs> who, were, who were trying to sort of be cooler than we are. Yeah. How about for you, Jeff? Any film history families that you, you kind of wanted to bring a touch of? I mean, there, there were things that we looked at. Little Miss Sunshine would come into the conversation and yeah. like, oh, yeah, that's like a good depiction, like good honest depiction of a, of a family. We looked at a lot of like buddy cop comedies and that for the relationship uh, uh, with uh, Rick and Katie, uh, just from like a story structure. Like how does this work? How does cinema handle two characters that are opposites and uh, don't, don't get along looking at everything from like lethal weapon to Zootopia, which uh, uh, accomplishes it wonderfully. Yeah. We were always really ashamed, but we're like, uh, uh, don't let anyone know, but we did just watch lethal weapon and we learned some stuff over the weekend. <laughs> so we're going to do some tweaks to the story. <laughs> um, Mike, I've heard you tell a great story before about how um, the film essentially began with Sony asking if you had any movie ideas and you being like, yeah. 
do I? Of course I do. <laughs> I'll be right back. And then, then you raced home. You raced actually back to your hometown, right? And uh, uh, sort of frantically started to sort of try and come up with ideas. C- can you tell me about that experience and perhaps what some of the ideas were before you landed on, oh, on sure. the Oh, sure. I, I can tell you all kinds of ideas. Um, no, because I... I Cause they, they sort of like asked and, and it was at a weird part in my, like I was working on the short and I wasn't even thinking about making any movies. So I weirdly had a lot of confidence in the meeting. I was like, what do you got? You know? And they're like, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's, he doesn't even care if he gets a movie or not. Which like, I think helped. <laughs> um, but then when I saw the opportunity, I like turned on a tape recorder and I, I was like, I came up with like 10 ideas and I was like, these are all gold. And then I actually sent them to uh, my friend uh, Jeff, um, and uh, and Alex and one of them was like, it was like, OK, a kid, um, a kid learns that Santa's not real, but he knows that all the other kids think Santa's real. So he's got to become Santa for the other kids. It's called Secret Santa. Great. That's one in the bank. Next. Um, <laughs> and then like I was like, I was like, look, I've got like 50 good ideas. And Jeff's like, Secret Santa is not good. That's not a good idea. <laughs> By the way, Netflix just bought Secret Santa. It's coming to theaters this uh, this Christmas. <laughs> so yeah, we, we optioned it. Um, it's starring Seth Rogen. Uh, it's um, uh, <laughs> but no, um, so but it was really exciting. Just just the idea that that like Sony was in such a weird position that that they were like, look, we're just looking for any new ideas. So it was like, wow, we have this like blank canvas to to make a movie and like, what's a movie that we would love that we could actually get made at a studio. And I thought it would be really easy. I remember thinking like, Oh, family and a road trip and, and robots like this, they'll sell this bing, bang, boom. It's going to be a slam dunk. And then like four years later, like they're, they're like, you're greenlit after like four years of like intense work, just proving ourselves like, you know, making animatics and doing rewrites and all this stuff. And, you know, making the script that, that, that we sent to you, it was like, it was sort of like, it took, it was like a long process to actually get greenlit. And and one of the big things that did it was we showed the movie in sort of animatic form, which is like, you know, temporary voices and, and drawings instead of 3d renderings for all the, for all the imagery. Um, and we showed it to a, a, a group of people in long beach and they liked it. So it was like, well, people like it maybe, and then, um, and then Chris Miller and Phil Lord saw it and which was like, to me, like enough for us. I was like, they saw it. That's cool. <laughs> and they liked it. Um, and then they're like, should, do you want us to executive produce your movie? And we're like, yeah, bro, dude, of course. What do you, I, um, uh, and then, uh, and then, and then that was really nice because they sort of it gave us a layer of legitimacy, which we clearly don't have based on everything <laughs> on this podcast so far. Um, <laughs> and we had these guys who were like, we've made hit movies and we think these guys are okay. And they're like, mm, do you really? <laughs> um, but, um, but that was sort of like the sort of some of the genesis of it. Yeah. And how did you actually land on the seed of the idea for Mitchell's versus the machines after secret Santa had been sure, yeah. discarded <laughs> RIP secret Santa and you um, ended up with this idea? <laughs> it was just sort of like, I was just kind of like trying, there's this like um, George Saunders like has this thing where it's like a lot of people say, write what you know. And George Saunders is this writer and he's like, write from an area of richness. And one of my sort of like areas of richness is like my family because I like love them more than anything, but they're also insane. Um, so I was, I, I wanted to do something about my family and then sort of the fact that my dad is this sort of like nature loving technophobe guy 
like it was funny to me imagining him having to fight robots. And then I was like, well, also, you know, I was reading a lot about AI and technology and I was like, oh, it seems like you could really, you know, it's like if robots can do and AI can do what people can do, what about humans is really valuable. And that was like a big, nice thematic juicy thing. So that seemed really good. And then also sort of when I started talking about that idea and myself to a tape recorder, it just sort of like the ideas, it became really easy to come up with ideas for. And it like, it sort of started building on itself. And I also sent my, you know, five or six, I actually have an email where I sent all these ideas to Jeff and he's like, Oh, I like this one the best. Um, uh, so Jeff picked it basically. Yeah. <laughs> well done, Jeff. You really pulled through, man. I know how to pick winners. That's <laughs> but, but what did, I mean, it seems so obvious now, like, you know, it's, it's the worst equipped family and they're tasked with stopping the robot apocalypse. But um, back then, what was it about that germ of the idea that leapt out at you, Jeff? Well, it, it's interesting because like what you just said, like the worst equipped family stopping the robot apocalypse, like I don't think that became like clarified and like crystallized in the movie until later in the game. Like you, you had always pitched it like that, Mike, like what if your insane family had to stop the apocalypse? But it's like that, like like really showcasing their um, inability to do it and the, the impossibility of it, like kind of came, kind of came later. Um, but I think it's just like, I, you know, Mike and I are good friends and I've met his family and I've, I've seen the, the ancestral Rianda home up in uh, <laughs> Salinas, California. And it's like, I know the, the stories that he's told about his family. And I'm just like, Oh, this is about your family. Like this is a rich area. Like the characters are specific and um, that's, that's like step one. Like if you can write the characters, like then, then you've got something. Um, yeah. And if, if you can, if you can have characters that we can both, fall in love with. Cause I remember it's sort of like we, I hired Jeff cause I was sort of bouncing off the walls, losing my marbles, trying to write it alone. And then they're like, why don't you get a, a co-writer? And then I was like, Oh, I know the best writer I know. Um, and, and it was really great seeing him write the characters like from day one, like he knew them really well. So he, they like jumped right off the page immediately. And, and we sort of knew that if we, if the characters were lovable, that's like, you're 90% of the way there. Um, if they're clear and lovable and specific, because th that's a, you know, sometimes people are like, this character is lovable because he gives a homeless man a donut um, or whatever. <laughs> and it's like, you know, or he saves a cat from a tree. Um, sorry, I'm saying it's such a mocking word. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's, it's sort of like, um, but it's like, it's like ideally, even if they did something wrong or if they made the wrong choice, you would also like them and you would just follow them because sort of the force of their personality. Um, and it, I think immediately from the jump, we both were sort of, able to to sort of like he his like first thing he ever wrote for katie was this like like uh insane um terminator riff called robo slayer bell Dawkin. and i was like <laughs> oh well this guy we're gonna write the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> um you know just because we shared a lot of the same like reference points and we we just also made each other laugh to a point in which i'm certain everyone else in the crew hated us like just us like <laughs> cackling like you know, jackals at our own jokes and just everyone else with their head in their hands. Like these, well, 
<laughs> we had multiple people change offices nearby us because they just didn't want to be around the. Uh, uh, there was too much mirth. <laughs> It is worth noting at this point that the draft we're going to talk about today isn't called The Mitchells versus The Machines, nor does it have the other title that was attached to the movie at one point, Connected. This draft is called Control-Alt-Escape. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> um, walk me through the history of this movie's various titles, guys, like where this yeah. initial title came from and how you ended up with The Mitchells versus The Machines instead. <laughs> Well, I'll really quick. The first title ever was like it was like the Davis family versus it was like the Mitchell family versus the robot apocalypse, which is like very wordy and stupid, which is what I loved. I was like, I want it to be wordy and annoyingly long. And then I was like, and then the studio was like, this is uh, a nightmare. Um, so Jeff is like the best person I know at titling things. So he just sent a list of 20 group, you know, great titles. And one of them was like, oh, control alt escape. And I was like, all right, I don't know, maybe that one. Um, and then, and then it, it, and then that one stuck and I was like, eh, is that good? Everybody loved it, by the way. Like everyone who isn't Mike was like, that's a great title. Tom Rockman's like, "Ah, I I like this title. Like, uh, it was very, it was very well received. It was. Continue, Mike. I don't know, but it was, and I was like, I don't like, I like the old title. Um, yeah, Tom Rockman is the head of Sony and he's this sort of like very old school, like, um, movie executive was like, I don't know, kid, I don't know about any of this. Um, but he's like, I'll tell you one thing. That's a killer title. All right. I gotta go. Um, uh, he's like, he doesn't have a cigar, but he's, there's like, kind of like, there should be one in his mouth. Um, uh, but, but yeah, he complimented the title and I was like, ah, oh, we'll have that title forever. Um, and then I, I it, it actually is a good title, but then, but then ultimately I think it was like the, just the fact that kids, I asked my nephew, I was like, do you know what control escape is? And he's like, no, I have no idea. What are you talking about? You're old and I hate you. Um, and then, and then, so I tried to go back to the original and shorten it. And I was happy about that. But then Sony was like, it's gotta be like a one word title, like an elegant Pixar esque title. Um, and then they went with connected, which I was always sort of like on the fence about because I understand it's like good thematically, but I just think if, if I was a kid, I wouldn't be that interested in it, you yeah. know? Um, and the missile machine sounded more exciting to me personally. Um, and then, and then ultimately when Netflix bought it, they were like, Hey, we like the old title. It's like, we like the old title. Great. You know? And I, I, I just, in case I prepared like this insanely long PowerPoint listing the 198 tweets of people who are like, I hate connected. It sucks. Um, uh, but you know, um, anyway, um, It'll work out in the end. Yeah, um, yeah, we're done the end. <laughs> hey, this is Al. Just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week. First, guys, we need to talk about Cave Day. Cave Day is the world's most focused community. They lead group focus sessions every day on Zoom to help you get more done in less time. If you write screenplays, I probably don't need to tell you that revising scripts requires supreme focus. The best writers know they need to shut out distractions and harness everything they've got to overcome obstacles, both internal and external. Cave Day is perfect for helping with that. Think of it like a group fitness class, but for your work. A trained guide leads check-ins, deep work sprints and energising breaks. Members report they get two and a half times more done with Cave Day's science-backed method. Join the world's most focused community and work alongside Emmy and Oscar-winning writers. Script Apart listeners can get a seven-day trial and 50% off their first month by using the promo code SCRIPTAPART, that's all caps, at checkout. 
Head to caveday.org to get involved. That's caveday.org. Support for this episode also comes from Coverfly. If you're a screenwriter who's still getting your work out there, you'll love Coverfly because they curate the best screenwriting talent discovery programs all in one place. On Coverfly, you can submit your script to writing fellowships, labs, competitions, and festivals, and track the status of your submission through your very own Coverfly Writer dashboard. They're also an incredible resource for aggregating data on emerging writers and helping connect great scripts and writers with industry professionals. To date, hundreds of writers have met their manager or agent through Coverfly, and these writers have gone on to work for Hollywood companies like Universal, Netflix, CBS, Amazon, and Blumhouse. Coverfly is helping make the entertainment industry more accessible through their data-driven talent discovery program. So if you're an emerging screenwriter with a finished script, be sure to check out Coverfly.com today. Click the link in today's show notes to find out more. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. What's so interesting about this draft is I think the bones of the story feel in place. Give or take a few things and a few characters that we'll get to in a moment. (laughs) It feels like, you know... You had the tone, you had the hilarity, and you had a lot of the excitement of the finished film down at this point. But what you really worked hard to underline and intensify in, in subsequent drafts was like the emotional aspect of the story. Um, so, for example, you know, we start the film in a pretty similar way, throwing the audience into into the deep end during a frantic robot car chase, as as in the finished film. Yeah. And then we throw back a couple of days to the night before Katie leaves for college. We get to meet all the characters and we get a little bit of a lens into their heads during this like dinner table sequence. Katie and Rick argue, but the scene doesn't end as it does in the film with the heartbreak of Rick accidentally breaking Katie's laptop. Uh, Yeah, so I'd love to hear where that addition to the scene came from and, and whether or not it feels like development of that scene and the addition of like the laptop breaking is kind of emblematic of a lot of the work that you had to do to the draft to really make the character dynamics sing. Yeah, totally. I mean, that one came out of pure um, sort of, I don't know, panic, I would say maybe um, because we had the story like we felt OK about the script. We we're because like our goal always was like this, like very lofty, like greatest animated movie of all time. And we knew we weren't probably going to like beat Miyazaki and, uh, you know, Pixar or whatever. But like we could maybe, you know, by trying, we'd get close or whatever. So we were always like trying to sort of like, okay, we weren't satisfied with the script, but we have to board something. So we had the storyboard artist work on it and they always added a bunch of awesome stuff to it. And then we, we, we tried to watch it as soon as possible. Like how could, how can we get to the quickest point where we could watch it like viewers and judge it, not as creators, but as somebody taking an input. And Jeff would always do this thing that I always love, which is like, before we watch the movie, he would pull up movie trailers So we would, you'd put yourself in the mindset of like, okay, I'm sitting in a movie theater. I just saw a trailer for the Lorax or something. And now here comes the movie that we're going to watch. So we could try to watch it as, as, as viewers And the the draft that you watched, we watched together and we're like, man, man, I don't care. You know, I just don't like, I, I, you know, there's funny jokes and I like these characters and whatever, but I don't care about the story. And that was like a huge red alert. So we had this big story meeting and we were just trying to think of something that, that felt um, because you just didn't believe that Katie, that there were no stakes. Like you didn't believe you're like, whatever Katie wants to meet people who cares. Rick wants her to stay around. She's going to stay around. It's going to be fine. 
but it ne- we needed to have something that was like felt like a gut punch to the audience. And then we had this story meeting with the story artists and Jeff and stuff. And, and I think we as a group kind of came up with like, OK, it needs to be something that legitimately makes the audience think that Katie might leave home forever. And what could potentially do that? What are the things she loves? What if what if this laptop of hers gets broken? And then I think Jeff sort of smartly like wrote that scene I remember you telling me, Jeff, where it's like, oh, the, the scene needs needs to have a goal um, because oh, yeah. he is sort of uh, smarter than me and also watched the Aaron Sorkin <laughs> masterclass. Um, <laughs> um, and so so sort of we wrote it to this goal of like, oh, Katie's goal in this scene is to get approval from her parents um, to try to show them this video and that it goes wrong in like the worst way possible um uh so that was kind yeah. of and, and yeah the like, scene kind of came about there or became about like her trying to get her her dad before she leaves to just engage with what she likes and rick kind of trying to uh, uh in a kind of ill-advised uh 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 attempts like crack down on his family's uh um computer use and cell phone use and uh, uh, it was always about him, like making this like grand point about technology, which always felt like, um, uh, like, like you just, it's like, he stops being the character and you just hear the writer, like, uh, uh, talking through them and saying like, technology is bad. And it, it just felt like very unnatural, but like him trying to like, when it became about him trying to like express to his daughter that he's concerned about her and that uh uh he doesn't think he'll make it both became like more realistic and observed and more like conversations i think we've had with our parents and uh just more it it also like softened him because it's like he was coming from a good place like even though it was like oh i don't like it it's like he's i i get where he's coming from and i can relate to i can kind of do the math and and get it um but yeah and the it laptop was, uh, was just the thing that made it clear it was like, it was like a visual thing that you could like hang a hat on and be like, okay, this is what happened. This is what went wrong. Yeah. And I think that that was a lot of like the draft you read is like very talky. And we were trying to work with the storyboarders too, to sort of like, how can we make any of these points visual and visceral um, as opposed to just like a conversation between two people. And then, and then sort of, you know, one of the things about making the movie more emotional that we sort of started a little bit, but I think Chris and Phil were really uh, helpful. Chris Miller and Phil Lord, um, who executive produced the movie, um, were really helpful and instrumental and was like, just kind of policing us and make sh- making sure that like, okay, are the characters always trying to connect? And when you see, because it's like, I do think people want to get along with their families. I don't think anyone's like, I'm glad I hate my dad. You know what I mean? Like you, you're like, I'm supposed, we're supposed to love each other. What's going on? So when it's, when it is people trying to reach out, like, I want you to watch this movie and Rick saying, I want you to listen to me and I want to get closer to you. Then it kind of became more compelling too. Mm. That was a very long answer. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating. But I'm, I'm interested, like, obviously the, the, the one of the wedges sort of between Rick and Katie is technology. Um, how hard was it getting the balance right in terms of attitudes towards technology in this movie? Because, well, in the finished product, as an audience member, you're totally able to sympathize with Rick and his frustration 
um, towards technology, but you also totally buy into Katie's point of view. The internet has been this creatively liberating tool for her. That's part of how she expresses herself. She thinks it's how she's going to find her people. How did you thread that needle between the two? Because it's easy to imagine a film like this in other hands becoming a bit like old man yells at cloud kind of vibe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I mean, well, I think I, go for it, Jeff. I was just going to say, like, I think, I think it, it was kind of, um, it's like, like technology kind of became this like vague catch all for us where it's like, what, what, like, what does that mean? Does that mean like machines in, in general, like uh, old mechanical camera is technology. Like, uh, uh, does it mean social media? And I think there's, there's like, legitimate complaints about technology and what like social media is like doing to the world and stuff. But it was like, we kind of had to, I don't know, Rick's character needed to be like anti anything with like an electric uh, current or something like what would like, it, it was hard to like specify what that was and why and, uh, and where that came from for him as a character. And I think it was just about, connection and I don't know I Mike well well I mean I just I noticed that when we were writing I remember like because the thing the first thing you would think of if you're writing a movie like this is oh yeah well the dad would hate technology and he would be railing against it and whatever because my dad kind of hates technology I mean he uses it but he he's like ah. um <laughs> <laughs> um like so so he he always like, he'll like minimize a window and be like, I got hacked. Um, uh, but, um, <laughs> but so it's like, it's like, um, but I think whenever they would, the characters would monologue about technology as a concept, the script died. Like, it was like, you hated the characters. You hated the filmmakers. <laughs> you were like, this movie is terrible. Um, so we had to sort of come up with sort of ways that they engage with it. Cause like, you never say, hear Katie saying, cause in previous drafts, we had Katie saying like, technology is great. I talk to my friends online. I make movies online. And it was just like, <laughs> you wanted to kill yourself when you read that. And whereas if you just see her making movies online and see her connecting with her friends yeah. and visually see the emotional charge that she gets out of it, she doesn't need to say anything. Just like Rick doesn't really need to sort of rant about cell phones. He just needs to like say, oh, put your phones down. Let's let's make eye contact with each other, which is a more engaging and also visual way um, of showing his sort of distaste for these things. Um, and, 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 and it really ended up being just like we couldn't, verbally address technology at all because every time we did we would just bore ourselves because we were like the hardest critics of our own script like it was so, so funny like the studio would have notes and we're like you've got notes i've got notes page one i hated this line and they're like whoa kid calm down. <laughs> um so um so like that made it um and, and just like keeping, just being really uh, trying to sort of always see it like, like sort of when Jeff would put on the trailers and stuff, trying to always watch it, even if we're reading it like a viewer and be really honest with ourselves about what our, um, what we were feeling about the characters and the movie and the script and that sort of thing sort of negated almost any actual conversation about is technology good or bad because it just, it just was poison. <laughs> <laughs> well in the next few pages we're introduced to uh to the tech whiz who's responsible for pal the ai system that is going to attempt to enslave humanity later in the film in the finished film this guy's name is mark bowman 
in this version, his name is Mark Zuckercorn. <laughs> I'm guessing that changed. Forgot about because- that. I'm guessing that changed because you're not a fan of cease and desist letters. <laughs> uh, yes. Also, it's a very dumb name. <laughs> yeah, I just thought it was a dumb name. <laughs> Every time I would type it, I would just scowl in my heart. Like, Why is this character called this? I hate this so much. <laughs> and also, I would say, you know, the final name just came from a list of somebody saying like me just being like asking the crew, like come up with last names. I don't know. And then I just ran sort of randomly pick one that felt, um, uh, you know, uh, innocuous or something, but it, it, it's, I actually think that the, his last name, even though Zuckercorn is wrong, his current last name Bowman is like so unmemorable and means nothing that it's sort of a shitty last name too. So um, <laughs> I don't think we nailed that one. <laughs> Pal in this version has a pretty similar role, but again, it feels like you worked really hard to embellish and bring out the emotional side of the character. I mean, yes, they're an AI, but by the time you get to the finished film, you've put in that scene where you find out that this whole quest that she goes on is kind of rooted in insecurity and pain. Uh, She's an AI, but she's pretty human. Can Can you tell me about the evolution of Pal? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Pal was, all, was definitely one of the hardest characters to write because we always, again, we, we like, you know, we, we started with the sort of like the first idea, which is like, oh, okay, Pal is super intelligent and is going to be sort of like monologuing about how horrible humanity is and that sort of thing. And it's so funny because like people just tuned out you know, in the movie, and especially because I was the temp voice of Pal and it was like a male voice and it wasn't like Olivia Coleman, which like it helps when you have the greatest actor of your generation be the voice of, <laughs> of your yeah. villain. Um, but um, but it's it, it sort of like it, it, we, we and that this was a big sort of thing that we had with the with the meeting when we were in the edit bay with Chris Miller and Phil Lord and us. And we were like trying to brainstorm ways that that story could also be emotional and how that story could sort of more mirror because I bet in the one you in the in the version you read the tech story and the human story are like wildly different yeah um, and there's yeah. there's no thread connecting them and we were trying to sort of say that okay what if you know Katie is leaving Rick what if Mark is leaving Pal and and Pal and Rick have that connection of being left behind and feeling insecure and obsolete you know maybe there's a thematic connection there. Um, and even though we never sort of make it that explicit over the course of the movie, ideally it sort of makes the movie feel a little bit more cohesive. And and also the other thing we learned that is, is just, if something isn't emotional, if a story point isn't emotional, it's sort of dead. If it's yeah. just intellectual, if it's just characters talking, it's sort of, you know, we tuned out and the audience is watching it tuned out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like hard to watch someone who's motivated by an ideal or something. Yes. It's like it's so much easier to relate when it's like something personal or even if they are motivated by an ideal. Like, what does that ideal mean to them personally? It's like articulating like the personal stakes of, of something. Exactly. Um, In my house, just full disclosure, since watching this film, when something goes catastrophically wrong, the byword for it is now 
Prancer belongs to the canyon now. <laughs> um, we should take a second to talk about the humour of the film. It's it's such a hilarious movie. I can tell how overflowing with comic ideas you guys were for the film because there's some incredible jokes that you ended up cutting. There's one gag about how to attack a beaver and why you would want to attack a beaver that uh, absolutely <laughs> cracked me up. I forgot about that. Um, how hard was it whittling down what to keep in and what to sacrifice to keep the story moving? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll sort of talk about that a little and then sort of like let Jeff take it away because like, I, you know, Prancer Belongs to the Canyon now was a Jeff line because he if we were at a party and we would lose someone for five minutes, he'd be like, you know, you know, um, uh, Justin belongs to the night now. Just keep moving. <laughs> um, uh, and like there's like a hundred jokes in the movie that has someone so belongs to the so and so now. Um, but that was the one we ended up, we ended up leaving in. Um, so some of it is just stuff that we love. I mean, I think you know, because we grew up with the Simpsons and because we wrote on gravity falls, I think we kind of almost have like joke ADD where anytime we write a scene, it's like, okay, it's, it's got to have at least five or six jokes to kind of, you know, to be able to read it out loud and be proud of it or something. Um, which I don't know if that's healthy. Um, but then my strategy for the jokes, which is to keep all of them, um, and then Jeff's strategy for the jokes was to like only keep the funny ones, which I disagree with and think is a terrible plan. Um, but- <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, th- I think for me, like the, the writing jokes is almost like an insecurity or something where it's like, uh, like it's hard to know if an audience likes a dry line, but a joke becomes binary. Either someone laughs or they don't. And it's like a great way to know if you're, if the, screenplay is doing its job or or not so it's like i don't know what to do just put a joke in i don't know what <laughs> they should be talking about just make it a joke um and then and then i think for for me um josh weinstein uh who who is a showrunner on the simpsons for a while and we worked with on gravity falls said this thing once about like load-bearing jokes uh where it's just like a joke that like isn't just funny, but also reveals something about the character or moves a plot point forward and is, is supports the, the narrative. And for me, it was always like, how do we either cut the joke or make it like a load bearing joke? Like, I think there's like an allowance for things that are just funny just cause they're funny and entertaining, but otherwise you generally always want to be moving the story forward. And I think that was like one of the biggest, like, contrasts between uh me and mike working on the film it's like i would overcut and mike would tend to undercut um yeah it, we called it we called uh jeff dr snips um <laughs> it, it would be like he his version of the scene would be like you know two minutes shorter and play better but i'm like oh my favorite two jokes were cut and then i would always add back the jokes and he's like will you add the time back and i'm like sorry (laughs) um but i another thing just about the comedy of the movie is like that was honestly like one of the reasons to make the movie for us was just because you know we just wanted to make an animated movie that was like super like laugh out loud you know, legitimately funny because there's there are a lot of great animated comedies, but sometimes you'll watch an animated movie and you're like, there was like three jokes in that and none of them made me laugh or whatever. So we're like, well, if our movie is really funny, that that is something that we can that's some that's something like different, um, hopefully. And so we had this thing on the wall and it was like we needed to have 50 legitimate, reliable laughs that like if we showed the movie to a new person, they would hopefully laugh 
50 times or more, um, which is very lofty. And I don't know if we got it, but, um, but that was always our like goal. We had all these like little goals like that to try to, to try to kind of keep ourselves honest about like what we're going for. Mm. Now, two big changes from the finished film in this draft. Well, first of all, the Mitchells encounter the president of the United States (laughs) who ends up coming with them on their road trip. He's on a mission to deliver this EMP device that would disable power and all the robots. It's it's the Mitchells job to help him. Uh, (laughs) I'm interested to know uh, why this character was a part of the film initially and whether or not he came out because, well, take your pick, A, 2016, people's perception of a US president may have slightly changed or B, whether like, I don't know, like it, it, it seems kind of so much more dramatically satisfying to have um, the Mitchells having to save the world themselves rather than being kind of assistants to this yeah. charismatic kickboxing president character. Was it, was it an amalgamation of the both? <laughs> um, I want to, I want to address two things really quick. One is in the, in the very, very first draft, the one that we never showed anyone, including you, um, I just want to highlight one thing was that the that his character arc was that he was like kind of a weak president um, and that he was kind of spi- like people always called him spineless. <laughs> and then Jeff, Jeff and I had this thing that made us like cry laughing where the end of his arc was ripping out ro- like 10 robot spines and holding them in the air and screaming, who's spineless now? <laughs> um, I was going to say that's still in here. Or uh, Yeah. <laughs> But but without the setup. So it just seems like it's taken on this really brutal turn. Yeah. Anyway, so I've interrupted. No, 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 totally. I mean, because that that makes sense with the movie. But I remember at one point, like, I was like, I was like, Jeff, we have to take out the spineless thing. He's like, the spineless thing is hilarious. We have to leave it in. Um, But um, uh, because I was like worried about the executives. They're going to think it's too r-rated um but um but I, I had always sort of been really excited i just thought it was really funny the idea i would just like imagine in my head my dad trying to kidnap the president of the united states and it seemed really funny to me um and i was holding on to it and i remember jeff and i were working on the script and at various point and i was like that's one of the reasons to make the movie to me it was like i was like oh this is so funny it's it's one of the reasons to make the movie and then Jeff in the, in the sort of writing phase is like, why do we have this president in here? It's, it's, it's slowing down the movie. The dumb robots are funnier anyway. Like, what are we doing? And I'm like, we have to keep the president. This is madness. <laughs> um, and then we storyboarded it. And that scene, even though the scene with the kidnapping the president, it's not like the one that you read, but it was like, it was really well boarded. It was like, well done. It should have got laughs and it was dead silence. And I was like, Jeff, you were right. Um, <laughs> like, I have, I have, I, 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 I've, I admit everything. And then also, no. In addition to that, it was like the 2016 election happened. Like, I don't know, 12 days after we decided to cut that, um, and it was just like politics got like less funny and fun. Um, mm. So those were those were some of the reasons. But it worked out so well because it did give you space to incorporate the two dumb robots, Eric and Deborah Bot, who who don't really have a role in this draft. They're sort of in it in a kind of almost like a cameo sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're, they're such fun characters. We have to talk about the mall scene, the Furby. I cannot remember the last time I laughed so hard at a film. Um, but God, yeah, this whole scene just absolutely crushed me. Um, I'd love to know what the reaction was 
when you presented the idea to Sony, when you told them that you wanted the big set piece in the film to involve an inexplicably oversized forgotten toy of the 90s that screams lines like, I will avenge my fallen children. <laughs> were they just like, okay, cool. Yeah, sounds good. Or was there, was there any pushback? Um, <laughs> well, 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 I, you know, it's, it's like, do, do you remember the first time we saw that? Because like the first time we saw it boarded, we were like losing our minds laughing. And the first time we saw it yeah. edited, we were like, is this the funniest scene of all time? <laughs> and then I remembered we showed, do you remember when we showed Mike Moon? And it, Mike Moon was one of the executives on the movie who was really great and sort of like championed the movie getting made. And everybody at Sony, like to your point of like, Sony was like very cool about the whole movie. Like they were, they were on board. They liked they thought they thought it was funny. They liked us. They were like, this tone is really consistent and fun. And like, it's legitimately funny and it's moving and all that stuff. So they, they were always on board. But um, the first time we showed them this scene, it was like, I was like, I noticed people aren't laughing hysterically. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Uh, are you guys sick? Um, what's happening? <laughs> um, but uh, so, so not, it wasn't an, it wasn't an initial hit. And also I would say like the version that you read, like, and that, and, and it, it was it, the version that you read also has a bunch of other dark toys, which mm. we sort of like thought were really funny uh, there was a character called Collecting Carl that was there to collect your bones that we really like. Um, <laughs> but um, but it, it, it was also sort of like those jokes were kind of redundant um, because it was like it was like a dark toy, dark toy, dark toy, dark toy, dark toy. There's like 55 dark toy jokes that made us laugh really hard. But we realized that we needed to kill the first, you know, half of them to make the Furbies actually like shine because it was just the same joke over and over. And can you tell me about constructing the final act? Because in the draft, Katie electrifies herself in order to deliver this kill code into the back of Pal. The president's mm -hmm. been captured. It's up to Katie. She seems to sacrifice herself for the family. Obviously, in the finished film, you went a different way. Can you tell me about the evolution of this ending? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll sort of sort of hit it off to Jeff because Jeff is sort of like, um, like some sort of... Uh, amazing savant wrote the version that you see like in two hours, like wrote a new final act because, um, cause I, cause I think the main goal was we we're just trying to sort of like, we we're just trying to do more cross cutting and, and make, make the act more exciting instead of having it be linear. Cause it was really long. Right. Yeah. Well, it was, it was very clunky and there were like a lot of, it was like, like doing the return of the King thing where it's like, it would end and then something would happen and then it would end and then something would happen. And it just like kept going up and down and stopping and starting. And it was, and it's like, you know, even though it wasn't, it was a little bit too long, but it felt like an hour too long because of yeah. the, the <laughs> shifting momentum. And we're like, how do we just like have, I think, I think we had uh, part of it was like, you had listened to that like Michael armed thing about like oh, yeah. star Wars and how like everything switches at like the same time. And we're like, Oh yeah. How do we have like all of these threads turn at the same time? And starting from there, we're like, okay, so this has to go this. We talked it out. We kind of plotted it at a whiteboard. And then I went off and wrote it with the general rhythm that it has now. And like, you know, a bunch of lines updated and changed and the jokes got better and stuff, but that like cut to this, cut to this, cut to this, cut to this came out of that like first, uh, 
uh, crack at it. But like Katie sacrificing herself, it also kind of like thematically didn't work because it's like that that's her that's like telling a story of like I didn't appreciate my family and now I appreciate my family and I'm going to sacrifice myself for that. And we're like, I think we ultimately got to a place where we're like, Oh, that's kind of not the movie. Like it, that's the Rick is right uh, version of the movie. And we need to also honor Katie and uh, you know, have him sacrifice too and have them all work together. And it kind of became about the family, uh, all appreciating each other and everybody being sorry about something and, and um, uh, yeah. instead of just this, like, uh, I was wrong, dad, you were right. Thanks for uh, giving up your cabin for me, uh, which seemed kind of hollow. thematically. Yeah. Well, and I remember um, one of our friends, um, actually it was Dana Terrace, who was a wonderful board artist and helped us out in the beginning and runs a great show on the Disney channel was like, this is like, I don't know, like boomer dad, some sort of boomer dad fantasy. This sucks. <laughs> and I was like, that like haunted me. I was like, <gasps> um, so we, we were, that was another thing too. We're really trying to make sure that you really knew that this was like a double arc where Rick is learning and Katie is learning simultaneously. And it's not just, you know, the message of the movie isn't respect your parents, um, which yeah. is a, a lame message. <laughs> and it's like, I would feel like a dummy working six years on that. And even though the, theme is sort of spelled out almost cartoonishly clearly i'll take that over um you know over the movie being respect your parents the movie which is uh, not what we're trying to do so the film ends on the same message in this draft the same realization for katie rick says hey katie good luck finding your people as he drops her off at film school katie replies dad come on you guys are my people it's, it's a really nice, uh, you know, it, it's a beautiful message. Can you tell me what you wanted to uh, express about the importance of family with with that ending and with, uh, yeah, Katie's arc wrapping up like that? Yeah, and, and just just to the, to the point we were just talking about, it was sort of like I had always had this sort of thought that I could never sort of express in the movie of just that, like, families are hard work and the, and that the, the, the way that your family will get better is not just a starting to appreciate your parents, but actually, you know, calling your mom and, you know, sort of, you know, you're, if you're a dad saying like, Oh, what are you working on honey? And sort of like actively taking steps to sort of unite as a family. And, and we sort of added threads in, in act two where, you know, Linda's holding up the sign to sort of make Rick try and, and Aaron's holding up the sign to make Katie try. And it's like, Oh, if you're, if you make these efforts and if you put out these olive branches, you will become stronger as a family. And that's one of the more, that's one of the best things you can do in life. Um, um, so, so yeah. And, and, and Katie says this in a cartoonishly bald uh, <laughs> monologue, um, but hopefully we um, used enough flashbacks to, uh, to do it. And also um, after she says this big speech, um, Guillermo Martinez, who was our head of story, who was brilliant and, and a bunch of really funny jokes sort of in story form and sometimes in typewriter form. Like he's, he's, he's like, you know, if, if there's any credit given to this movie being like funny or, you know, good or whatever, he sh he deserves a ton of the credit for that. But he was like, Oh, you should have pal be asleep because, and, and talk about how boring this monologue was. And that was the thing that like actually saved 
uh, the monologue from being um, totally unusable <laughs> was that Powell was calling out what the audience might be thinking. Um, so that was sort of the thought in terms of the theme. And stuff. Well, and, and to that, you guys are my people thing. Like uh, uh, just to speak about you and your dad, Mike, like you, I remember you talked about this in, in meetings and stuff where it's like, you know, like there were times where you and your dad were just like the complete opposite people, but there's also like, weird things that you share and stuff that you like learned from him and his like kind of wide eyed, like I'm going to get this thing done, even though nobody uh, else believes in it or thinks that it's crazy. Like there's something about that where it's like, you know, whatever your relationship is with your family, like you are part of that. You carry part of that with you. Like they, they become part of you and, uh, what you like about yourself is in some way owed to them, you know? There's a beautiful grace note just at the end um, where we see Katie is in a same-sex relationship. And I don't know, for, for the longest time, I, you know, people have made these attempts in animations and in sort of family films and whatever else to kind of like diversify the types of people and types of relationships you see. It just seems like so it's put in in such a normalized way in such a natural way um i'd love to know about how that came about and sort of what the discussions were around potentially sort of wanting to show this is a film about family but families don't always look the same it seems to be a slight hint towards that well and we were always trying to sort of like be observational in terms of the writing and stuff so when we were doing the writing like Katie reminded us, you know, me and Jeff of some people that we went to school with that were LGBTQ plus and, and sort of like some friends and family members that we loved, you know, and, and we sort of, we were talking about it with the crew and we have crew that are LGBTQ plus. Um, uh, and they were like, and we were, cause we don't know, cause we were, we were a sort of straight, you know, idiot white dudes. Um, and we're like, is this okay for us? Like, should we? And they were like, no, 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 do it, do it. Like they were like, like, you know, just go, go, go. <laughs> like, you know, and one of us or, or, or one of our artists, uh, Lizzie Nichols, who is wonderful. She's a great designer and stuff, but she wrote this like really like wonderful email, just sort of like expressing to what it would mean to her um, to have a character that she's working on be LG, LGBT. And it was like so moving. It was like, oh my God, we have to do this. And then it sort of just became, you know, cause it was sort of an idea like, oh, maybe we do it. And then after like hearing how excited everyone was about it, we're like, well, now we have to do it. And now we have to kind of do it right or right. Try to do it right. You know? So, so we, we worked with them a lot and sort of, we did a lot of workshopping and sometimes we'd go too far where like, there was a couple of scenes, there was one joke that sort of, I, I'm not sure which one of us wrote, but I thought it was really funny where it's like, um, Katie's about to die in the gas station and she's like, um, and she's like, <laughs> and she's like, Oh, I'm going to die. And I've never kissed a girl yet. And then someone next to her is like, Ugh. and she's like, it's the end of the world, dude. You, you really have time to be homophobic. Right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, but s- stuff like that ended up being sort of like more distracting and less normalizing, you know? Mm. Um, and, and sort of like an, an Abby who did, did the voices is, is, is by, um, and they sort of helped us along and say like, no, the cool thing about it is that you're not making a big deal about it. Like that's what's, that's what would be meaningful about it instead of, you know, cause you guys clearly don't have the bona fides to tell the coming out story or anything. And then they're also like, and plus we've seen that a bunch. It's like, it's more exciting just to see a character be casually, you know, like her eyes are, you know, Brown. 
Um, she's mm-hmm. also likes girls, you know. So um, so that that that's sort of like how we ended up doing it, I guess. <laughs> and the big question, guys. Obviously, there's a fun frame in the film where you can see some of Katie's pictures for a second movie. What is the latest with talks about a sequel? Have you guys begun down that path with Sony yet? Um, uh, my official stance is that I'm tired. (laughs) 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 I I, I left that list of names and I'm like, Hey guys, if you guys want to make one, go for it. Um, I'm sleepy. Um, but, um, you know, I think, I think it's like the cool thing about the name is that it, it, you, it gives you license to sort of try new things. Um, but, um, but personally I sort of, um, am taking a little break. Yeah. Well, you've got Secret Santa to finish up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I'm looking forward to having both you guys on in December for that. Part. Um, guys, it's this is going to be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mike, Dr. Snips, this has been so much fun. Um, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. I absolutely adore this movie and uh, I can't wait to see what comes next from you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thank you.